0: So, a few of you were here last night when Stephen Batchelor talked. Um, Jerry asked me if I was going to do a little riff on what he said. It was an interesting question. And so it reminded me of some things I've been thinking about. So I'm going to start there and then maybe we'll see where it goes in terms of what Stephen said. (coughs) We've talked a lot we talk a lot at retreats, we talked some here about the notion of refuge, of refuge in Buddha, and Dharma, and Sangha, refuge in that which is awake, and that which is true, and in the community of people who seek that. And recently I've been aware that um, it's very important in my own practice that I am not seeking the Awakeness of the Buddha. The Buddha lived 2500 years ago, and I actually, in my own personal understanding, do not understand him to be any kind of a magical being who had an understanding of quantum physics at a time when nobody knew anything about quantum physics or had an understanding of psychology, although he was very astute psychologically, certainly, or understood mm, some of the cultural issues around men and women in the same way that we understand them now, and just didn't say anything about it because he lived 2,500 years ago and therefore he shouldn't, you know, talk out of his time. That, that does not seem to me to be a very useful <laughs> concept of the Buddha. So it's been interesting to work with the notion of refuge in that which is awake, as refuge in the deepest awakening possible, regardless of whose it is or what it is. That that what the Buddha was teaching us and wanting us to do was to look as deeply into our own experience as possible and to be utterly awake to it. Utterly to see it clearly, to see it for what it is, to understand the nature of our experience. And there are some things that he pointed out then that we are understanding now at deeper and deeper levels. The teaching about impermanence, the teaching about how we create endless suffering by holding on to things being different from the way that they are, and the teaching about the nature of self is being not solid and separate and concrete. And some of those, for example, the teaching about suffering, is a very astute psychological teaching. That when we get restless when we're wanting this and not wanting that, there's there's so much difficulty that we create in the heart and the mind it was true 2500 years ago and it's true now the teachings about the nature of self when you start adding in what we now know about physics and and particles and all of that become even more and more interesting because in a Deeper and deeper way, we see that we are neither solid nor separate, and in fact, there's a lot of energy and matter floating around that we don't even know what it is in the universe all this dark matter and dark energy. So, to resolve for myself that I will seek awakening no matter where it takes me is a very challenging and I find quite exciting way to take refuge So that's that's what I that's the refuge that I'm looking for is that level of awakening and I think for any of us it's a challenge because it requires to look at things we don't necessarily want to look at to take something some information in that we don't necessarily want to take in Wait, Stephen and I were talking about something that the Dalai Lama has said a number of times mm-hmm. Stephen doesn't think he really needs it I'd like to think he did, but let's (laughs) not go there. Um, And the Dalai Lama says, you know, if we we uncover in our scientific studies things that definitively prove that some aspect or other of traditional Buddhist teaching is not true, then we have to let go of the traditional Buddhist teaching. Now, I think that's a very strong stance to take, and I actually think it's a very wise one, and I think it's one that the Buddha would very much have appreciated that that if something comes along and we say oh, this isn't this isn't the way matter is that's the way matter is then we have to let go of those old understandings and follow that so that's also then refuge in that which is true, it's the deepest truth that we can find and truth isn't, you know it's so easy to grab onto something and say, okay, this is the truth. But you know, I think all of us in this room are old enough that if you look back, you see that there are places that you thought this or that was true, and then later on, you went, oh, well, maybe not quite. And so then you understand something else is true. And, and so the, the, the truth that is the refuge is the deepest truth that we can find. And again, that that, you know, gone into with that sense of this is where I am today, and the universe and reality keep unfolding themselves, and we don't know what we will see next. We don't, we don't, no idea, really. And then the the sangha is the community of people who seek that level of truth and that level of awakening. And my sense is, again, that these people can be found everywhere. In all religions, in all cultures, there are people who really, really seek the truth and awakening. And there are people who don't. There are people who think they know the truth, their awakening is the only awakening, Mm they're done with it. The only people who belong in the club are the people who see the way they do. So, okay, but that's not the sangha that I find to be a record the Sangha that I find to be a refuge are the people who who constantly reach out for deeper levels of truth and awakening so as Stephen was talking last night Stephen Batchelor who's a really well known Buddhist scholar um, and one of the things he said that I found most helpful was that what the Buddha, this body of Buddhist teaching, some of which came from the Buddha, and some of which has undoubtedly been added to in the twenty five hundred years since the time of the Buddha, um, that there there's a way in which it's a very malleable body of teaching. It's a very open body of teaching, and every time and culture that has come to that body of teaching has found material that is useful and that can be used and that will serve our time well. And and I think that that's very much what's happening in the 21st century, late 20th and early 21st century of our time that people in the West have come to Buddhist teaching in a way that has never happened before in a time that is different from any other that was before. And our finding teachings in there, some of the, some of them are the are essentially the same as have been taught, you know, for those entire twenty five hundred years. You know, if you're kind and compassionate, you know, then your your life is tends to be better. That's a simple one. And I think that's been a thread through most of those teachings for that entire 2,500 years. And some of them are not so useful in our time. The teachings about women and the teachings um, come to mind in particular as ones that quite possibly were added on after the time of the Buddha and are not useful in our day. And mostly we don't pay much attention to them. Stephen talked a lot yesterday about that kind of monastic hierarchical system that so many of the teachings came through the male monastic lineage. And and the assumption was that, you know, if this time you were a householder like everyone in this room, that was a little too bad. And you could just hope for a better lifetime next time, preferably as a monk or a nun, and really preferably as a monk. Because nuns are definitely secondary. So, you know, this is not, this doesn't work in my culture. It's, it's, it's a remnant of what was true in India 2,500 years ago and has been carried on for quite some time and no longer seems significant or helpful in our day and age. So, I invite you to play with that in your own way to think about, you know, do you, you know, it's really an interesting question where am I open to awakening you know are there things that I don't you know this one (laughs) I don't want to see that one over there I don't want to think that that might be true and and am I really open to the deepest truth that I can find and do I find my companionship with other people who are seeking awakening and truth in the same way so I think I'll stop there and see those of you who were here last night might have further questions or comments from what Stephen said or maybe that something I said um, today has triggered a question please Jerry um, last night you said something about enlightenment you know kind of you're not going to get to the to figure out how the universe works and then the first thing you said today was awakening and I've sort of my mind always pushed those two together so I I think what you're saying I was a way more personal discovery I'm not sure that we, we were saying different things actually, it was a little unfortunate, when she was referring to Stephen right towards the end of the evening um, there was either he said or there was a question that had to do with enlightenment my understanding of what he was saying although I haven't had a chance to check this out there's a there's a lot of Buddhist teaching that puts nirvana and enlightenment out there way out there usually usually some other lifetime and again in some traditions only in a male body and only in a male and celibate body so we're toast most <laughs> of us in this room you know? we don't get to get there and and so, is that really what enlightenment is about? The, the one of the definitions that I find most practical about nirvana or nirvana is that it is a mind without any greed, any hatred, or any delusion. Now you might say, well, how can that be practical? Who could have a mind like that? Well, you know, tricky, right? Very hard to have a mind with no greed, no hatred, no delusion. But it possible to imagine, for starters less greed, less hatred, and less delusion, and it's possible to have experiences where that are momentary where there's no greed, no hatred, and no delusion and one of the definitions of Nibbana or awakening or enlightenment is that it is momentary and it comes here and then it's gone, and it comes there and then it's gone, and it comes another time, and then it's gone and so you have a moment of awakening sometimes, hopefully you realize it I think you do if it's real awakening and and then you can't hold on to it because there's still a residue or reverberation, karma if you will if you want to bring up something else he talked about (laughs) of habits, a habitual way of mind and heart that has greed, hatred or delusion but when we have those moments and the notion is and the work of practice is to bring them closer and closer together. You will also hear me talk, and I didn't, haven't had a chance to ask him what he would think about this, about that, that the notion that freedom or awakening is a geography, and that, that in any moment there is a place that you can find where you do not have to suffer where you're not attached to things being other than the way they are, where you're seeing them clearly. So again, no greed, no hatred, no delusion. Does that help? Yes, yeah. Thank you. It makes it, you know, for our time, I think people are really hungry for a practice that works in our everyday household lives. Most people, you know, are a little skeptical around, well, like, you know, many lifetimes, maybe, but it can't be proved, and there's no way to see it. Other realms, same thing. Um, and so, and there is there is a teaching that he referred to last night, and um, one of the sutras, called the Sutra to the colonist that basically says, um, you know, if you knew there were other lifetimes, how would you live your life? You'd live it with kindness and compassion and carefully and And if you didn't, because that would be the way towards the ending of suffering. And if you didn't know that there were other lifetimes, how would you live your life? You'd still live it with kindness and compassion and carefully, because it's still the the way to the ending of suffering in this very lifetime. So, you know, we do what we do, and whether there are other lifetimes or other realms, that will take care of itself you don't have to get excited if you're really welcome to hold on to as a belief, but you're probably sitting in the room with people who don't um, and it, so it makes it a practice that's very, very available which is I think partly why so many people like it in our day and age I think we should probably